life ever thrown you a curveball that you weren't sure what to do with? You know, the kind where you think someone should really do something about this. Have you ever thought maybe that someone is me and then found yourself on a grand adventure you never saw coming? Me too. As a special needs mom, I have been saddened by what's available to my son. But instead of wallowing in it, I decided to do something about it. Along the way, I'm meeting extraordinary people and having the most wonderful experiences I never thought I'd have. I'm so inspired by what's happening around me that I want to share it all with you. Living Your Legacy is a community where ordinary people who have been called to create something bigger than themselves can come together to be inspired, connect, learn, and live into the legacies they want to see in the world. I'm your host, Michelle Slaney Travato, and this is the Living Your Legacy podcast. Well, hello, everyone. Michelle Slaney Travato here. I want to thank you so much for joining us on another episode of the Living Your Legacy podcast. Today, I am so excited to introduce you to a woman who completely inspired me in our pre-podcast call. The story that she told me just resonated um, with someone who has such courage and tenacity and perseverance. And I wanted you guys all to hear it because there are so many days as people who are legacy makers or the people who are supporting legacy makers where you just want to give up, where you just want to go home, hide in your bed and stay there. But for those of us who are legacy makers, we know that that is not okay. Can't do it if we want to achieve the things we want to achieve. So today, I want to introduce you to this extraordinary woman. And she's got a couple of stories she's going to share with us. So I'm pretty excited to hear them. So I'd like to take a moment to welcome Pamela Brannon to the call. Pamela has spent a long time serving the AIDS community and advocating on behalf of the world's most vulnerable children. Right there. Don't you just want to meet her? After participating in the country's, and that's the United States, first ever AIDS radiothon, she changed her career course and began working with prominent AIDS service agencies, most notably the AIDS Project Los Angeles and Project Angel Food. While at Project Angel Food, she was introduced to this organization called the Children of Uganda and their Dance Troupe. Soon after, she traveled to Uganda and worked with children who had lost their parents to AIDS. Now tell me that is not heart-wrenching. She was inspired by the children's genuine joy for life and returned to the U.S. with a newfound passion to support Uganda's orphans. She ultimately joined the Children of Uganda Board of Directors, where she served until transitioning to her current role of Executive Director. We have got the big cheese on the call today. <laughs> Pamela's vision for Children of Uganda's future includes the construction of an academic and healing arts academy, where children would benefit from a holistic approach to their educational future and overall well-being, something most much needed all over the world. Pamela also happily lives in a small town in the United States with her beloved daughter, Vanessa, and beautiful dog, Samson. So Pamela, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. Thank you. And my goodness, what an introduction. 
Oh, I, I think I, like, have you come and introduce me wherever I go? Like whether it's a, a speaking engagement or CVS. Oh, good. Done. I'm in. We'll do it. <laughs> um, well, you know, Pamela, it's not hard to say how impressive you are having met you because what you do and who you are is impressive. So tell us a little bit about the backstory. I always start with this. You know, when you were in grade four and the teacher asked you what you want to be when you grow up, working for AIDS organizations and ultimately working to help kids who have lost their parents to AIDS in Uganda, not usually top on the list for those kids in grade four. So what's the story of how you got there? I love this question and I have shared it many times. When I was in college, I I graduated from the University of Maryland in College Park, Maryland, and I was studying radio, television, and film with an emphasis in radio production and screenwriting. So it was a requirement to have a couple of internships, and so I got a um, uh, an internship at a radio station in Washington D.C. And one of the things they did in my tenure was produced the country's first ever AIDS radiothon. And I had not met anyone at that point who had AIDS. And I had a a history professor at the University of Maryland who said, if we don't respond and respond quickly, AIDS will be our own. It will be our ultimate downfall. And I was like, what? Like, I don't remember anything from college, (laughs) but I remember that. And, um, I mean, I remember a lot, but you know, it was one of those turning points in your life and you have no idea. And so when we were doing this radiothon, I saw people that were my age at the time. I mean, 18, 19, 20 years old being wheeled in on a wheelchair, um, through, it was a 24 hour, um, radiothon. And they were talking about, you know, they had dreams and they had a vision for their life. And that dream and and that vision was being cut short. Mm-hmm. And but oh my God, you know, I'm 19. I have to do something. And so I started volunteering at the Whitman Walker Clinic in Washington, DC. It was at the time and probably still is one of the most prominent aid service organizations in the country. Mm-hmm. And from there, when I decided to move to Los Angeles after after graduating from college, I asked them, okay, I want to continue volunteering. Where should I volunteer? So they recommended AIDS Project Los Angeles. So I started volunteering, ultimately worked there. Then I took a job at Project Angel Food. Some people listening may know Marianne Williamson. Um, She founded uh, Project Angel Food Mm -hmm. and their mission up to this day is to, um, prepare fresh meals for people living with AIDS and other life-threatening illnesses. And it was through that organization that I met the 2000 dance troupe from children of Uganda. And I thought they were incredible. They were talented and then they were off. And then two years later, uh, they came back through Los Angeles and through a series of coincidences, um, they contacted project angel food and they wanted to do an event with us. Well, for whatever reason, the receptionist sent the call to me. Um, I was not the executive director. I was the director of the volunteer resources department. And I just, I was the hand of the universe, the hand of God, whatever you call your higher power. And I met them and I was again, and I was so 
just, I don't know, I was in a different place and my heart just, it was like a light got turned on. Um, I was a very happy person at the time. I loved living in LA. I had a you know great group of friends. I loved my job and it was a light switch I didn't even know existed. Mm-hmm. And the moment I spent time with these kids, a switch went on and that switch has been on ever since. And so when I was asked to join the board, I said, I've got to go to Uganda to make sure that this is a legit organization. And it was. Mm-hmm. Um, and at the time, um, AIDS was really, it was, an, an, you know, a scourge. It was a pandemic. And the irony of getting involved at the height of the pandemic with AIDS and then being connected with the organization during the recent COVID-19 pandemic is not lost on me. Mm-hmm. But I came back from that trip in 2002 and I was a woman on a mission and um, joined the board. And then uh, in, at the end of 2007, the board came to me and asked if I would be the executive director. And I was like, no, I will not. We were in trouble at the time. Yep. And um, a friend of mine, when I told her I had turned it down, she said, the, the moment I met you, all you talked about was children of Uganda. And I said, yes. And she was like, and so now that they're not, you know, in the, you know, in the flush, you don't want to take on this position. I said, I don't want to rearrange furniture on the Titanic. And she said, why don't you take another view and look at this as a challenge, you know, an opportunity. Mm -hmm. And I thought, okay, they're going to have to meet all my demands. And they did. (laughs) And I wouldn't call them demands, but all of my conditions, you know, they had to move the office from Dallas to where I am now because I was taking care of my parents. Mm -hmm. They had to match my salary. They had to cover my insurance. And I'm like, we're never going to do this. We are in so much trouble financially. And they did. So um, I flew to Dallas in March of 2008 and our former board chair joined me. And the rest is history. I've been here since March of 2008. So it started with me, you know, doing an internship Mm -hmm. that was required of me and meeting people that were my age that looked like they were 70 or 80 years old. And it was devastating. And when I met these children who had lost one or both of their parents, they were just filled with this joy and this light and this zest for living and performing and sharing their culture through music, drum and dance. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't to say that they had, you know, completely swept away the pain of, of their grief, but they were a unit. They were a family. And that's one of the most beautiful aspects of serving Uganda and Ugandan people, uh, children, especially they are, they're some of the most loving, kind-hearted, generous people I've ever met. Mm-hmm. And I, I feel it's a privilege of a lifetime. I get to put my head on a pillow every night and say that I know that something I did today made the world a little bit better. That's amazing. Don't we all wish we could say that on a daily basis? Um, I want to pick up on a couple of the threads of the things that you said. Um I'm assuming because you are still here and still in that executive director position that the organization has done better financially and has uh, made a rebound for sure, because otherwise I'm guessing you wouldn't have that position. 
And uh, what a story, you know, your journey led you a few different places. And I love that you said meeting those children was like a light switch that got turned on and you couldn't turn it off. Um, And it was something that lit up something inside you that made you think somebody needs to do something about this and that somebody is going to be me. Um, And I love that you stepped into that role and you've done that. Now, along the way in that journey, in your in your organization, in your business, in your your role, in your job, there came along another journey for you. Another story got born out of that. Another light switch got turned on. And I'd really like you to share that with us. Okay. Well, as you know, from our pre-podcast chat, this is probably my favorite topic in the world. Mm-hmm. My daughter, Vanessa. So in 2013, uh, I was in Uganda and the, the dance troupe was rehearsing and getting ready. And there was a you know very large number of children that were trying out. And, you know, e- each week we were, you know, p- paring it down. And there was this one little girl named Vanessa. She was nine years old. And when I first met her, she was she was sick. She had malaria. And so she wasn't able to rehearse the weekend that I was where they were rehearsing. Mm-hmm. Um, but I got all the pictures of the kids that weekend. And so when we were in the dining hall taking a break, I asked the girls um, that were rehearsing, who's the best dancer? And she wasn't there. They all said Vanessa. And mm-hmm. I was like, oh, and she's sick. And they were like, yeah, you know, blah, blah. Um, and so she made the cut. She went on the tour. Um, I was back over in January of 2014. We arrived in uh, Washington, D.C. And the dead of January was cold. There was snow mm-hmm. on the ground. And Vanessa was one of my roommates throughout the whole tour. And I fell in love with her. I mean, there's no other way. I fell in love with this child. And I have met hundreds and hundreds of children through our program. And I love them all. And that's sincere. There was something different about Vanessa. There was just this, this beauty, this inner beauty and this um, innocence. And yet this fierce courage to get out on that stage. I thought, can you imagine being nine years old, Pamela, and flying to another country? You've never been on a plane. You've never been on an escalator or an elevator. And suddenly you're on this big, huge thing and you're flying through the sky. And, you know, she just got out on that stage every single night and gave it her all. And every single day I grew more and more connected to her. Mm -hmm. And then the tour was over and I was so heartbroken. Um, generally after a tour, I would be, you know, blue, mm-hmm. um, or an oligo lightly and breakfast at Tiffany says I had the reds. Mm-hmm. Um, and this time it was really different. There was such an ache for, for Vanessa to be with me. Mm-hmm. And I talked about adopting her. And unfortunately at the time, Both of my parents, their health was declining and it was, you know, a slow protracted journey at first. And then they really started declining. And I knew that this wasn't going to be, oh, they've got a flu and they're going to bounce back. Mm -hmm. I knew it was the beginning of the end in in terms of their journey. 
towards um, the other side, as some people say. So after my mom passed away in 2018, I was in Uganda with our then board chair. And I happened to have dinner one night with a gentleman that was interested in uh, joining our board. Mm-hmm. And he was in the process of adopting his two nephews. And somehow I, I worked up the courage to ask what he thought about me adopting her. And he was so encouraging. Mm-hmm. And the very next day, I got the ball rolling. And from that point, that was in August of 2018, I finally got her home uh, on January 31st of this year. Mm-hmm. And we were so down to the wire in terms of her availability. Uh, that, that's such a strange word. It, her um, eligibility, that's what I'm looking for. Her eligibility to be adopted and to come to the U.S. And I'm telling you, it was like something out of a, a movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, and gratefully, this movie... Uh, had a very happy beginning. Um, thanks to COVID, it took a very long time mm-hmm. uh, to do this. And uh, I can't tell you, I go to bed at night and then I wake up in the morning and both times as I'm drifting off and I'm just coming awake, not every single day, but in the beginning it was, I am completely filled up knowing that my daughter is with me mm-hmm. and she's under the same roof and she's in school and she's thriving. There has been, you know, bumps in the road, but it is such a dream come true. And it was so hard, Michelle. I can't tell you mm-hmm. how hard it was. And I was told many times mm-hmm. by my adoption agency, I don't think this is going to happen, Pamela. You've got to prepare yourself. And I just would not give up. I'm like, okay, well, that's your opinion. I'm going to keep pushing Mm -hmm. and travel there many times. In fact, a year ago now I was in Uganda and I was required to live there for three months. And I honestly think the people that were involved officially in the adoption, I think they thought I was going to give up. Mm. And I said, I'm not going to give up. They clearly didn't know you. (laughs) Well, she was worth fighting for and is worth fighting for. And it's interesting. I've been called, you said tenacity. I have been called tenacious a lot in my lifetime. And it's always interesting for me to hear it because a lot of times I don't see that in myself Mm -hmm. um, because I was terrified that it wasn't going to go through but I just kept that inside. And I think it's okay. I think we can have the duality of emotions. We can be terrified and tenacious at the same time. Mm-hmm. And those two emotions can coexist. It's not one or the other. And I think far too often people get terrified and they forget that they have that internal fight that they can also tap into. We're human, you know, we're wired to be afraid because it's a way for us to protect ourselves. if mm-hmm. we're in a, in a scary situation, but we're also wired for victory and strength and courage. And so I guess I, I had the motivation. I know I did um, because every time I thought about it not happening, I gave myself the grace of a cry and a a long shower and an early bedtime. And then I woke up the next day and I just kept swinging. Mm -hmm. 
just kept swinging. You have hit on a few really important things that I'm hearing over and over again from legacy makers. And that is this, that you felt that fear. You were told no a lot. Uh, And you were told no by people in positions of authority who had the ability to stand in your way and stop you. And Mm -hmm. still you were like, okay, I hear your no, but I'm saying, yes, let's figure this out. And the duality of that feeling, the fear feeling, I mean, clearly in adoption, there are so many bumps in the road. There are so many places that the train can derail. Um, There are so many opportunities to get off at the next stop and say, you know what, I'm just done. Um, But at the same time, in your case, there was this drive, that light switch got turned on. As you said, you fell in love with that little girl and you wanted to make sure that she was going to be cared for for the rest of her life. That is so profound and it gives a person the most amazing strength to face Mm -hmm. those no's, to stay on the train, to not You know, even if the train gets derailed to pick yourself up, brush yourself off and find a different path to get there. And I love that you said all those things because so many legacy makers do not see themselves as super courageous people or someone extraordinary. They see themselves as an average person with a mission that was bigger than them, something they were called to do. As you said, you thought about it every night before you went to sleep and you thought about it every morning when you woke up and you put into action plans to make it happen. So I want to just talk a little bit about conversation. You adopted an older child who Mm -hmm. had lost a lot in her life Mm -hmm. already. What was the conversation like when you broached her about the topic of her coming to live with you? Well, that is that is such a great question. And I'm sincere. I mean, I know people. Oh, what a great question. This is a really profound question for me because her response when we saw each other the first time after she agreed to be adopted, I had left the country. It was a scheduled departure Mm -hmm. and we hadn't had a chance to get back to where she was living. She was in school at a boarding school and one of our team members went to the school and asked her if she wanted to be adopted by me. And at the time, she wasn't 100% sure what that meant. Mm -hmm. And they explained it to her. She said yes right away. And so that was in August of 2018. I got the foster care order about a week later. And I had a proxy stand in for me. And then in January of 2019, I came back. And when Vanessa and I saw each other, you know, it was was surreal because it was different. Mm -hmm. I was not her Auntie Pamela. And, and I told her though, she could still call me Auntie Pamela until she was comfortable calling me whatever she wanted to call me. And that is now mom. Mm -hmm. She said, and she kept, you know, patting her heart. And I said, are you okay? And she said, yes, I, I just can't believe it. I can't believe it. And I said, you can't believe what? She said, out of all the children in the program, you chose me. Why did you choose me? And I said, sweetheart, 
I don't believe I chose you. I believe the universe chose each other. And the moment that we met and that we spent that time together, our bond was solidified. And she got tears in her eyes and I got tears in my eyes. Gosh, I have tears now. (laughs) And I, I do believe that because, you know, it's like falling in love with someone. You know, why is it that, you know, you fall in love with someone profoundly, like the moment you see them and, you know, you've been out on, you know, 30 other dates with, you know, a bunch of frogs and you haven't met your prince yet. Mm-hmm. Nice people, but it, there was just no spark. And then suddenly, boom, you meet that person. And the love is obviously different. It, it is a maternal love, but it just felt as profound because like I said, I have sponsored children in our program. I have loved children in our pro- program and she was just different. And I, I, I have to pinch myself sometimes. How in the world was I chosen to be this, this girl's mother? And I'm adopted myself, as you and I talked about in our pre-podcast mm-hmm. chat. Um, and so I knew that, that gift of, you know, someone giving you a home and, um, and love and an opportunity. And so um, I feel like I hit the lottery. I mean, that's just, I mean, I hope I hit the lottery tonight, $1.2 billion. (laughs) (laughs) Um, A girl can dream. Absolutely. Um, So this one is, is priceless though. This, this uh, connection and this, and this bond, I, I know that I have been blessed beyond measure, beyond measure. And when I look back at my life and I look at the struggles and the hurdles I've had to get over, I remember one time I was running late for the airport and super late. And I was terrified again um, that I was going to miss it. And I got to the gate. This was pre 9-11. And I got to the gate and they were literally shutting the doors. And I was like, no, please, 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 please don't shut the doors. And they opened the doors for me. And my friend Angie said, because I told her the story, she was like, why do you worry? I said, what do you mean? She was like, I have never met anyone in my life that can make something happen like you. Hmm. And it's, and again, it's like, I think I said in the beginning of our conversation, I don't see myself that way. Um, I just have a hard head and I don't like taking no for an answer. And I am fond of saying, okay, now that we've talked about all the ways it can't work, let's talk about all the ways it can. And that's why I kept pushing. I got a new attorney during the adoption and um, he's a very powerful attorney and um, they helped tremendously. And so I had a friend say once, you know, if art were easy, and I think you can fill in the blank, if adopting a child were easy, if making art were easy, if, you know, dot, 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 if writing a book, starting a podcast were easy, you know, we would have a group of people that could fill up the Rose Bowl 10 times over. But when something is hard, you know, it's, you know, I call my, my daily post on Facebook, which I think is the reason you and I first got connected, the hard and holy journey. Mm-hmm. And I don't believe hard is a bad thing. I believe hard is an opportunity and it's an, it's a chance to, you know, rise above and, you know, and rise up. 
and do the things that need to be done. It's not about being comfortable. It's about being brave and being courageous. Mm -hmm. And unless you challenge yourself to be brave and to be courageous, you know, I can only speak from my own experience. I used to think, oh, no, I can't do X, Y, and Z. And when I started here, you were right. We were on the verge of closing. Mm -hmm. And I was just hard-headed enough to say, no, we're not. No, we're not. And it was like the Titanic. <laughs> it was like the Titanic. It felt like, at times like I was rearranging furniture on the Titanic. And the same thing with the adoption. And, you know, at one point I said, you might have to accept that this is not going to happen. And I said to myself, I will do that when I have uncovered every single rock along this path mm -hmm. and not a second before. Again, so many things in there to unpack around courage and hard being an opportunity. I love that. Um, every person who's a legacy maker that I have spoken with has said the same thing. Mm. It was an opportunity to learn something new, to stretch, to grow, to be a bigger, better person than you were before um, this experience. To not, I love also that you said, now that we've explored every way this isn't going to work, let's talk about the ways it could work. So moving into the realm of possibility rather mm -hmm. than scarcity, right? Once we start looking and we move into the realm of possibility, we put on our creative thinking hats and extraordinary things can happen. And you are clearly living proof of that. Mm -hmm. um, so let's talk a little bit now. I'm going to get into a topic you and I haven't gotten into before, but I think it's one well worth having. And it's a topic that um, an area that I live in as well. So we mm -hmm. are both white women because people on the podcast can't see us. And we are raising children of a different race than both mm -hmm. of us. So Tell me a little bit about what that experience has been like for you. As I mm -hmm. can tell you, I have learned a whole lot um, mm -hmm. about myself, about my children, about bias, about racism, so many things. So tell me a little bit about that. That's a really, this is a good, good area. I, I, it's it, again, it's a hard area because mm -hmm. you can change a lot, but you can't change your skin color. Mm. And I actually in 2014, when I went after the tour was over and I wanted to adopt her, one of the things that stopped me in addition to my circumstances with my parents was that she is a black child. And I thought, I don't know the first thing about raising a black child, mm -hmm. especially one that lives in her own country and is, you know, accustomed to her own culture. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I did a lot of soul searching around that. And I, um, like many of us, when George Floyd was murdered, mm -hmm. I, and, and I was, you know, in the process of the adoption. I mean, it was during COVID and I'm, I'm embarrassed to say this, um, but I have never felt such like white hot rage mm -hmm. 
And my black friend said to me, and it was kind of like, and, and please forgive me, um, but when Donald Trump was elected and I was talking with my black friends here in the U.S., I told them how sick I felt about it. And my black friend said, we're not surprised. This is the life we've been living every single day. There's no surprise for us. The fact that you're shows me that you have not been awake. And they weren't being mean. Mm -hmm. They were being honest. They were sharing their lived experience. And I remember thinking, oh my goodness, they are 100% spot on. And so after that election, I began amplifying the Black women in my life that I respected the most. And by that, I mean, I shared their stories on my social media. Um, I shared with friends of mine, we held a couple of rallies here at Children of Uganda um, after George Floyd was murdered. And, and it, there were only Black speakers and mainly women. Um, so I started thinking about do I even want to bring Vanessa over here? Mm -hmm. You know, and because then it was Breonna Taylor and, and Ahmaud Aubrey, and it just went on and on. And so um, I just did my best to educate myself and my work will never be undone. It is not up to black people to dismantle the system that has been built to, you know, um, promote you and I, you know, mm -hmm. to, to give us the privilege that we have. And I had so many blind spots. I thought because I had black friends, it's like the person who says, well, I have gay friends. Okay, big whoop. What are you doing to amplify gay voices? Mm -hmm. You know, and I have black friends and I work for an organization that serves black people. Big whoop, you know. And so um, I know that I'm an imperfect person when it comes to understanding what she's going through. Mm -hmm. She's in a school that is mainly white and upper class. And one of the things I said to her, and I say it often, I do not want you swimming in a sea of whiteness. Mm -hmm. I don't mean that. I mean, I don't <clears throat> want someone to say, well, you know, not all white people. I've heard that since the whole George Floyd debacle. Mm -hmm. um, that again is another bias and blind spot. You know, we all benefit from our skin color, those of us who are white mm -hmm. and you know, there are times when I'm in the car and a police officer passes me by and I never thought before that we could be pulled over just because I have a black person sitting in the seat next to me. And one of my friends said that when her kids were growing up, that she had to tell them every time they left the house how to behave. Mm -hmm. And this was way before all the things that happened in 2020, you know, with the Black Lives Matter and whatnot. And so I am a work in progress mm -hmm. um, and uh, we've been invited. This is so, this is one of the most precious things to me. We've been invited to Denver for Thanksgiving and I'm going to be the only white person there. And it's one of um, the people that I've chosen to be um, uh, her godmother. She'll have two godmothers. And so she said to me, I want you all to come to Denver for Thanksgiving. I want her to have a black Thanksgiving. And I said, that's what I want. And so, you know, I, I don't want to be the center. I don't want to center myself. I want to center her and I want to center other black people in our lives.
And I tell her all the time, if I say or do something that you don't like, please call me out. Please, please, please call me out. You know, I knew that hair would be so important to her. And we found a salon that only does black hair. And her stylist is from Africa. She's from Liberia. And she is the sweetest woman. And she, every time Vanessa goes, she just pours, you know, just positivity in her. And we had dinner last week with a couple of friends, one of whom is from Uganda and her husband is from Nigeria. And they've invited her to spend the weekend with them. And I'm so excited for her. You know, she'll eat her food. Food is so important to her, you know, her food from Uganda. And it's very hard to find that here. And so, again, I am learning and I will be the first person to say that I've made mistakes already. And as my friend Erica says, you know, this is not about being safe. It's about being brave when you're in spaces where you're learning you know, about the biases that favor you and the privilege that you inherently have because you were born white and you were born into a system that was built for you. And so um, I love when people tell me that I've done something wrong. I know that sounds that sounds crazy, but I can't raise a daughter that is proud of who she is, of her skin and her hair and herself if I'm not being called out when I, you know, when I've made a mistake and I am humbled by this experience, this, again, this opportunity to be her mom, to learn, you know, to amplify her and, and others, you know, black women in particular, I think the world has been built on the backs of black women and they saved the, to me, I think they saved the country in 2020. If tomorrow's results are what I'm hoping they will be here in the U.S., I think they'll do it again. And, you know, it is really time for those of us who, you know, say that they have skin in the game to make the world a better place to start doing the work that we've been called to do. And I am... I'm hopeful, but I'm also not completely what, what, how can I describe this? I'm very hopeful that that work will continue. And I think the only way that we're going to make, continue to make progress is if we're willing to be really uncomfortable and again, do that hard and holy work. I find this to be hard and holy work, you know, and I believe that so many people if we had not had that video of George Floyd, it would have been a completely different scenario. But I watched it and most of my black friends said that they could not because it was so traumatizing. And I watched it and I, I found myself screaming at the video, get off of his neck, get off of his neck. And people all over the world, including Uganda, were watching us in what we were doing as a result. It isn't just about slapping up a Martin Luther King quote a few times a year. It is about really getting in the trenches and looking at how much people suffer every single day because of the system that's been set up. So I talked to her a lot about white supremacy here. 
I've told her about George Floyd and, and Ahmaud Aubrey and, you know, on and on. And she asked me one time why, I can't remember who it was. I think it was some people, the people that were involved in Ahmaud Aubrey's murder. And the they were sentenced to so many years in prison. And I'll wrap with this. Uh, I told her what happened and I told her what the verdict was. And I told her some of the things that the judge said. And she was like, why would they do something like that? And I said, that is the million dollar question. You know, hate is something that, you know, we're not born haters. It's something that is, is really ingrained through a, just a long, oh God, protracted history of um, racism in this country. And it's, it's, it scares me to think that when she starts driving, she hasn't started driving here, that I'm going to have to tell her the same thing. And I've told her that there are certain things she can't say when she's with other people, when she's at school, she can say it at home, but she can't say, you know, in other places. I was pulled over a few years ago and I didn't have my insurance card and I used all of my white girl tears to get out of a ticket. I had insurance. I just didn't have it with me. And Michelle, I will tell you, I was embarrassed to, about myself. I pulled into my office parking lot and I sat there and I thought, if this was my daughter, she would have gotten a ticket. You know, thank God it would have hopefully only been a ticket yeah. given the go on. Um, but it is something that, I know I'll be learning my whole life. Mm -hmm. I'll be learning my whole life. And it's interesting because I, I asked questions in Uganda and, you know, about race and um, how they feel about the U S and they're all pretty convinced that, you know, we are, you know, beyond a racist nation. Um, but they still have a lot of love for people, you know, Americans. And so, I know I, I rambled. I guess the bottom line is I'm doing my very best to center her in her experiences mm -hmm. and, and others as well. And it, it is an ongoing, ongoing process and yep. it hurts some, it is, mm -hmm. it, it's painful as you well know. Yep. Um, and so I, I know I can't be all things to her. She needs to be with people who she can relate to. Yep. And I've done my best to find um, movies and we went to see the woman King twice. Mm -hmm. We're going to see black Panther two on Friday. We're going to watch black Panther on Thursday. Mm -hmm. We watched all American and she loves it because, mm -hmm. you know, I was watching, you know, law and order SVU, you know, or whatever. And it's just mainly white people. Mm -hmm. And I don't think white people are bad. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> you know, it's not about good or bad. And it's not about not all white people. Mm -hmm. It is about amplifying people who have been pushed down for so long. What happened to George Floyd? And I really will stop on this. What happened to George Floyd has been going on for hundreds and hundreds of years. There has been a boot on the neck of people of color. And now the spotlight has finally been put on what kind of nation we are um, and bringing her here during this season. Um, I knew I had to 
step aside in a way. Mm -hmm. So I hope I didn't ramble on too much. No, you didn't. There was an awful lot there. And I think it's important in the world of adoption, there are many interracial families um, and it's an important conversation. And as you said, the important things are not easy or everybody would be doing them. The important things are hard and it requires a lot of us to, to handle the hard on an ongoing basis. And it is something you and I both live with. And Mm -hmm. it's been an interesting, an interesting experience and an enlightening one and a heartbreaking one and, and a powerful one all at the same time. Um, My son, who is currently 13, as of this recording, um, is, uh, was born in the States And uh, that's my younger son and uh, is half Puerto Rican and half black. So we have two cultures for him that we are addressing. Now, my husband is half Argentinian and speaks Spanish fluently. So we we have more connection to the Latinx culture. Um, But my younger son, when the George Floyd thing happened, my husband and I really debated, you know, what are we going to do here? Do we show it to him? Do we not? And then, of course, we thought, well, there's no way for him to not know about it. So he might as well know about it with us. And so we sat and prepped him and we watched some of the news footage and he was very quiet. And I said to him when it was when we finished watching the news footage, what do you think? And he said, Mom, I don't understand. Why would someone who looks like you do that to someone who looks like me? aren't we all the same on the inside? And I thought out of the mouths of babes come the truth. And that was hard to hear. That was really hard to hear um, because it brought forward um, a very distinct difference in our house. And Mm -hmm. it was a really interesting conversation and an ongoing one. We also followed that right through to its end um, and made sure that he saw the outcome of that as well so that he didn't just see the problem without at least seeing people struggling to find the solutions. Right. Um, Because I wanted him to be a part of that journey too. Um, It gives you a broader perspective Mm -hmm. uh, for him, for us, for our, our entire family. And then because I don't want to, that's a heavy conversation and we could carry on for hours about it. I also want to point out that, you know, sometimes you just have to have a sense of humor about things. So we too uh, went to see Black Panther. We will absolutely be going to see the second one. Um, and again, I wanted my my son to see a strong cast of people that were people of color. And I said to him at the end of the movie, what did you think? And he said, I think it was awesome that everybody looked like me, except that random white dude. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's great. And, you know, he said they were pretty funny about that. Like they addressed some of the issues of the random white dude being there. And and 
again, his perspective on it and, and sharing that experience with him. And the same thing, finding a barber shop that's predominantly people of color that are the barbers, all men. And, you know, my son goes in and, and these experiences that they have, there's almost always a double take when I walk in the door with them. They're like, who's this white girl? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but more like a question, not a judgment, just like, are you all connected? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it's- then we have the opportunity to to address that, to open the door to those conversations and being open to those conversations, um, I think has enriched my life and enriched my son's life and enriched the lives of the people around us because we are open to those hard conversations. And I have what I call my mommy 911 crew. These are black women, women of color, who I call with my pasty white girl questions. Um, And they have agreed. I asked them, I'm like, so I have questions. They are probably going to strike you as very silly. And, but I need somebody that I can trust to answer them. I mean, I can go Google this stuff, but really I'd rather have their personal experience. And so they said they agreed. And then they said, you need to understand. We'll probably laugh at you first. Then we'll answer. I'm like, that's totally okay. I'm, I'm all down with that. And it's been extraordinary for me and for them to be able to share in that experience for them to pool their collective wisdom. Often I ask when we're in a group so that I can get each of their experiences. And just like every human being, their experiences are slightly different and somewhat the same. And so they can share all of that with me and they tell stories and um, I get blessed with that information, with being a part of that circle in their lives, with empowering them to be my mommy 911 crew. And I think, again, we are all the better for having that experience and for having that shared experience together, right? Because for many of them, it's the first time white women, a white woman has asked them these questions. And so sometimes it takes them a little bit by surprise as well. Um, But ultimately, the idea of creating a legacy, the idea of parenting our children, the idea of reaching out in support to people who really need it. I mean, I did not want my son growing up in foster care. Um, You did not want your daughter growing up unparented and alone in Uganda. Um, There is so much to be blessed with about for um, in this, in these scenarios that I think it's extraordinary. And I think you're extraordinary and all the things you do and the things that you continue to do both in your business and in your personal life, I think really do. It's the stuff legacies are made of. So tell us a little bit now about how people can reach you in your organization and personally, if they would like to connect. Okay. Well, I apologize that my dog, Samson, that you mentioned at the top of the interview, uh, had to interject uh, and, and, and bark. He's, I'm at the office and he's looking out the window and I have no idea what he sees. So anyway, um, well, if you are interested in getting in touch with me uh, about anything to do with children of Uganda, we have a wonderful website, which is childrenofuganda.org. And my email is Pamela, 
P-A-M-E-L-A at childrenofuganda.org. Personally, um, I'm pretty active on social media, primarily um, Facebook and Instagram. On Facebook, I'm simply Pamela Brannon. If you're having trouble finding me, it's a picture of Vanessa and Samson. So, um, and I have a little voter icon on my profile picture now. And then same thing with Instagram. Uh, it's the same photo, um, Pamela Brannon. So you shouldn't have that hard of a time finding me. Um, so the easiest thing is to get to me through Children of Uganda. So, um, and my, my professional email address or my work email. Um, but I'm happy to welcome any new friends uh, who want to follow me uh, or become friends with me on Facebook or follow me on Instagram. I'm, you know, pretty open. I post every day. Um, this is uh, how I'll wrap up. When we were waiting to come home in January, um, things just kept getting delayed. And excuse me, we had a scheduled flight to leave on January the 17th. And then we knew um, her visa had not been approved. And so I just started writing out of frustration. And I then decided um, to post um, every day on Facebook until we got home mm -hmm. because so many people were reaching out and it was exhausting trying to keep. And I know that sounds really like, oh, woe is you, <laughs> but it was more just overwhelming Mm -hmm. um, and, and painful to share the same unfortunate story over and over. So I just started writing every day on Facebook and, uh, I think I'm up to day 293 and I was going to stop when we got home. And then a couple of my friends reached out when I skipped a day and they're like, where's your post? I'm like, what post? Where's your, your post, your hard and holy journey post. <laughs> and I'm like, well, we're home. I don't think you're going to be interested in what Vanessa had for dinner. We're very interested. Please continue to post. Mm -hmm. So I'm up to date, uh, 293. So you can read the whole, you know, the good, the bad, and the not so pretty on my, on my Facebook. Oh, I love that. Um, I also love your willingness to share and be open for these difficult, but so rewarding conversations. Uh, I would imagine that if somebody was interested in connecting with you around the Children of Uganda organization and um, doing some fundraising, that would be something that would be amazing. Oh, yes. Very amazing. Awesome. So if somebody is looking for a legacy to create, this is one opportunity for somebody to create a legacy that way and support your organization and what they're doing. So please do check out the website. It will be in the show notes if you didn't get it when Pamela said, if you maybe you're in the car, don't write and drive. That's challenging and it doesn't usually end well. Um, so again, if you didn't get it, it'll be in the show notes. So you can go back and check that. And uh, as Pamela said, she does post these things. Congrats, by the way, that's a long haul to be posting every day. Um, takes some skill to be able to do that. And definitely some tenacity. There's that word. There you go. <laughs> to, to continue to do that and share your journey. Um, again, we can all benefit when we when we can learn and grow along with somebody in their journey towards becoming a better human being. And thank you so much for sharing your journey 
your story, your legacy with us today. I really, truly appreciate the time, the difficult conversation that we just scratched the surface of today. The friendship, I think we have, I have found a new lifelong friend. Absolutely. Um, And uh, I hope that our audience feels the same way, that you get connected with some people that are meant to be in your your life and that you were meant to be in theirs. Thank you so much for being with us today, Pamela. You are so welcome. Thank you, Michelle. Thank you so much for joining us today. If you enjoyed this episode, please submit a rating and review and share it with a friend. Together, we can inspire more people to start living their legacy too. And let's keep the conversation going. We would love to hear all about your journey in living your legacy and support you along the way. Join our Facebook community, Living Your Legacy Podcast, where we connect, collaborate, and celebrate each other. Can't wait to see you there.